0: Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of the book of Ezra. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we come to Ezra chapter 7 this evening. Now, with Ezra 7, much of the chapter is taken up with uh, what is actually a a new situation in the history of God's people, though I'm not going to be talking much about it tonight. I will come back and handle this larger situation, and what I'm speaking about is from now on, well, actually, I guess you might say from earlier in the book on, um, that in Ezra, we've already seen this happen, uh, God's people are going to no longer have the government over themselves. From here on out, they are going to be under the government of a foreign nation, yet still in the land. And So, uh, there's an important question. How should pagan kings, heathen rulers, relate to the people of God and the house of God? This is not only of antiquarian interest, of course, but has been a matter of concern all through the ages as Christian kingdoms and nations have come and asked the very same question. Uh, Is the state to dominate over the church? Is the church to run the state? Uh, no, there is a proper separation that's given here, and yet we also find that uh, not only is the state uh, charging taxes in the whole of trans-Euphrates to support the true religion uh, and the, the temple of God, which is provided for, but the king also enforces the law of God. This is, in other words, uh, the origin of the establishment principle or the established religion principle or the establishmentarian principle whatever you want to say. One that we're not very familiar with in this country where there's always been a very strict separation of these things where for the king to be able to give money to the temple would be uh, a sacrilege practically in our politics. But we read here that uh, the Lord put it in his heart to do it and commends him for it. And uh, so I, I say, this is all this, what, I, what I'm not preaching on. Uh, this is this is what uh, stands uh, uh at the at, at the front of this chapter i will come back and get it but we are also introducing this chapter to the author of our book to ezra to a man who makes a profound difference to this community and i'm going to be introducing ezra to you tonight promising either next week or sometime to come back and pick up this larger matter which has already as i say been introduced to us and uh which might need some further elaboration more than I can do this evening. But anyway, from Ezra, chapter 7. Let us begin with verse 1. Read the full chapter. Now, after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saria, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Athiab, The son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. 4, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people and of the priests and Levites in my my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go up with you. And whereas you uh, are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon along with the free will offerings of the people and of the priests are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now therefore be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams and lambs and with their grain offerings and, the house, uh, and their drink offerings and offer them "...on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, that which you may have occasion to provide, pay it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king." Issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethinim, or servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge in all the people. Judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river. "'All such as know the laws of your God "'and teach those who do not know them. "'Whoever will not observe the law of your God "'and the law of the king, "'let judgment be executed speedily on them, "'whether it be death or banishment "'or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. "'Blessed be Jehovah, God of your fathers, "'who has put such a thing as this into the king's heart "'to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem.'" and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Amen? Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we come once again to your holy word and we that we might uh, also... Uh, beg that by your Spirit that you would uh, uh, help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest all of this for your own name's sake, Father. You have caused it to be written for our instruction, and so we pray that you would now fulfill all your desire in your people for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we might have thought that the book was over at the end of chapter 6. I mean, after a great personal struggle. Amid fierce opposition, despite all the intrigues of the enemy, the temple was at last rebuilt. And God's people gathered and had a great celebration uh, of the feast in Jerusalem. Mission accomplished. The sunset can uh, close us out and we'll roll the credits. They all lived happily ever after the end. But you notice uh, this is not the end. It's not the end at all. In fact, we're only halfway through this book in so many ways. This story is really only getting started. And the work now, the real work, begins in earnest. I say, what do you mean the real work? I mean, they already came back from exile and built the house of God. Well, yes, well, those returning exiles have worked very, very hard and overcome great dangers and navigated opposition and at last, as I say, brought it to a glorious completion. But Why? Why had they rebuilt the temple? Was it because they liked beautiful buildings? Uh, No, that's not it. The purpose of it all was that God's people might then worship and serve God together. As his holy nation we heard about this morning, that Israel might be a holy and distinct people and God's name would be hallowed through them throughout the earth. Well, that's the real work that remains. Now we just got some of the infrastructure done The rest of the book tells us about the real work. Ezra chapters 1 through 6, which we have already studied, tells us about the struggle to get the temple rebuilt by the first group of exiles who returned from Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and Haggai and Zechariah playing important prophetic roles at an important time when they were stuck. We have followed their story from the return from Babylon in 537 to the construction of the second temple, which was halted but then restarted in 520 BC, to the dedication of the temple in the great Passover in 516. All this is behind us now, the story of the returning exiles and the kind of uh, excitement and encouragement that they are meant to inspire of uh, further generations Chapter 7 begins rather casually. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, well, uh, that says uh, we're we're jumping 58 years ahead, okay? After these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, what we learn actually in verse 7 is a certain year in the reign of Artaxerxes. We're now in 458 BC, jumping ahead uh, a generation and a half. That is to say, the exiles that had returned are either very old or have passed on. Uh, the, the, the nation has settled in. Some of them have begun to intermarry with uh, the heathen, as they are traditionally called. And in general, now we find very little to distinguish God's people from the world around them. Okay? So, worship is going on. But the the people are not a holy people. That's part two of this book. And I introduce it to you to to show you that this is a very contemporary book. This is a very contemporary problem, a very modern predicament. Uh, What do I mean? Well, I tell you today that worship is going on all over this land. And as George Barna and his compatriot Gallup frequently report, I quote from one, There are, quote, no observable differences between the moral behavior of professing Christians and the rest of America. Or Newsweek comments. Surveys reveal a nation where most claim to be religious, but few take their faith seriously. Another writer remarks, all the evangelism in the world from a church that is herself not holy and righteous will be worth a hill of beans. That's good theology. Alright, and after one other major survey, survey, George Barna concludes quote, every day the church is becoming more and more like the world it allegedly seeks to change. So this is why I say this is a very contemporary uh, issue, a profound one for us to study. Reports like this reveal a deep seated problem in the church, but it is no new problem. In fact, we find it's a struggle of every generation. I mean, here, those people left Babylon, right, uh, they put it all on the line as pilgrims and they sacrificed much and they endured much and they risked much to serve the lord and now you know, 60 years on well we find that there's a struggle that faces every generation no matter how good their legacy is will we be faithful some of you know that we've been in pakistan for over a hundred years and you know it was hard in those early days when. There were virtually no Christians uh, there uh, starting off. And those first first believers were risking it all in uh, coming to the Lord Jesus and laying down a good foundation. And, you know, here over 100 years on, one of the big problems the church is facing is nominalism. You say, well, I understand that in America, but how is that true in Pakistan? It's true everywhere. It's true all the time. This is the importance of books like Ezra. These things are written for our instruction as we read elsewhere. We too, uh, in our generation, must face this issue and we must become the people that uh, God calls us to be to make the difference in the world. As we read this morning, the Lord always revives his church, but he he does it with a certain kind of uh, typically uh, vigorous... Uh, uh, servant. Well, back to our passage as we introduce the second half of the book. The people of God need revival and reformation. How's it going to happen? Well, we're at last here in chapter 7 introduced to a man named Ezra, our author, a man who's going to be blessed of God to make a profound difference in the community of his generation. It says in verse 7 that he's a man who had, quote, the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Verse 9, the good hand of his God upon him. And if you missed it, verse 28 to summarize the chapter. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered the leading men of Israel to go up with me. All right. Uh, Here's the man who's going to make a profound difference in this community, in his generation, which had a big need. Well, that's just what we need, you say. And what kind of man is this? Well, let me tell you. In fact, there's an excellent summary of it here in verse 10. If you'd like to commit this to memory, this is one of those Navigators topical memory system verses, which perhaps some of you already have. Stored away in your heart. Uh, This excellent summary of the man, Ezra, verse 10. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. It's kind of an introductory sermon to part two of this book. So let me give you the introduction to Ezra in four parts this evening. Uh, And I'm hardly the first person to recognize these four qualities as I say navigators long ago had pointed these things out and other things but this did help me very much as a new Christian as I prepared to serve God and whatever he was going to call me to do and I hope that it will prepare you also for in that one verse verse 10 you might swirl away in your heart for later we find four qualities I'll call your attention to you to for you uh, first we read he was a man of resolute heart He had prepared, or some of you have set, his heart. And he set his heart. He was resolute in these three things. He had, second, a diligent mind. He had set his heart to seek or to study the law of the Lord. Third, he had an obedient will. He had set his heart to practice or to do the word of God, the law of God. And fourthly, he had a testifying mouth, as he had set his heart, to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel, so I'll go over these a little more slowly as we go through each one. But this is basically our our study. Meet Mr. Ezra. Here's going to be the, the the man on whose the man on whom the Lord's hand rests, the the one who will be blessed to raise up his generation, the kind of man that. I wish to be, and I hope you women, children, uh, and fellow men also have this in your mind as well. The Lord seeks such. This is not just of antiquarian interest. This is the story of what happened in a generation and must again happen in our day. First, a resolute heart. A resolute heart. It says in verse 10 that Ezra had prepared... His heart, Uh, or the word uh, is often translated fixed or established, and many of you have set his heart. He set his heart. Uh, It's uh, kind of combining these ideas of, uh, yeah, fixing or setting your heart beforehand uh, in order to be ready. It uh, signifies the idea of being firmly committed to a course of action, so that when the heat comes, you're immovable, unwavering in your direction. You remember the book I I described to you this morning, a long obedience in the same direction, picture of a runner in a very long road going straight up and down uh, in front of him. Well, that's, that's that's the picture here, a verb that means established, fixed, prepared in a particular pursuit. Everything that is wonderful that came from Ezra's life, in other words, first began deep within him, uh, before we meet him, in God's unseen work in his heart, a heart prepared and therefore resolute. Now, uh, how many people do you know who have their heart set on spiritual things and will not be moved, firm and settled? How many? Okay, uh... How many of you know Christians who are immature in their faith, easily tossed back and forth like the wave of the sea, unstable in their course of life, who seem to have no idea what it is to be mature or at least a mature believer? Some people who seem to find it a lot easier to be irres- irresolute of heart. Oh yeah, I got, I got more of those in my mind, right? Okay, all right, so to be clear, uh, the word heart in English Refers to not just the seat of our feelings, as we often mention it in English, but all, but more the idea of the center of a person. Right? We talk about like the heart of the matter. We mean like the the the, the center, the middle, the uh, the the the, the, the uh, important thing. And so, as I've showed you in the Bible, heart describes the the inner life, the depth of one's soul, the core of one's being, core. Uh, also uh, related to heart, same idea. It means the center of someone, the heart of the matter, uh, including the intellect by which one thinks and considers and understands, including the emotions of what we feel and what we love and what we long for and desire, including the direction and the commitments of our lives that determine our course. Ezra had set the entirety of his inner being upon serving the Lord and to do so according to his word. In other words, wholehearted. He was all in. All the chips pushed forward. He was all in with the Lord. Resolute. Okay. That was a remarkable illustration of this that I've often reminded you of. Uh, We could think of the young Jonathan Edwards, who as a teenager, listen up teenagers, as a teenager in his own journal for himself wrote down 70 resolutions to guide his life. You say, well, couldn't he wait until he was a little older? No, he has the whole life before him, and so he figures out, I'm going to have to figure out how to live it. So, uh, number one, resolved, that I will do whatsoever I think most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this, Whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever, end quote. Well, now, oh, that's number one, by the way. That's one, one, one resolution, okay? But, you know, you got to start somewhere, okay? Uh, that's the first thing he set down. Um, early ones are all dated, by the way. didn't didn't all come from the pen at once. He sat down for many days and thought through his life, and said, what kind of life do I, as a teenager, want to begin to live? And, as you see, I want to live to God's glory and uh, for my good and the good of my fellow men, which are the same thing. So, whoever I'll marry, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, whatever will be my ministry... I'm going to order in this way. Here is the number one interpretive key for everything else that comes from this remarkable life of Jonathan Edwards. He he first asked, look, what's going to glorify God? This will determine where he lived and whether he would be a professor or a pastor or what what order and how he would preach and how he would live his life, what glorifies God. And so uh, that needs to be resolute in your heart as well. In other words, he sat down and prepared his heart. He set his heart. On what he wanted. Uh, Another one here, number three. Resolved, if I, if ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. In other words, you know, recognizing I'm not going to keep this and everything, but I'm going to grow dull in pursuing the things of God. And as soon as I realize that I am, I am resolved to repent and to bring it to mind, to throw off my spiritual slumber and reenter a passionate pursuit of glory, the glory of God and my own good and the good of my fellow men in this life, okay? So uh, recognizing a certain weakness and instability is going to be inevitable. How will I deal with it to prepare your heart ahead of time, resolved, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, just like what Paul said to the Corinthians, right? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Number five, resolve never to lose one, listen to this, young people, one moment of time. But to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can, all right? Now, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to waste time today, right? I mean, it's pretty easy to waste hours doing that, Right? Edwards uh, understood. I can't do what I want to do. I can't live as I want to live. I cannot glorify God and seek my own good and the good of my fellow man if I'm just wasting all this time. You know, he's got his life before him, but he's like, I I want to. I want to devote myself to the right use of time, and then I will live as I want to live. I cannot do my utmost to glorify God and so forth unless I wisely and strategically learn to invest the moments that God has given me every day of my life for his glory. That's a tremendous insight for one so young. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. I like that one. That gives me a little oomph. To live with all my might while I do live. You know, sometimes you're kind of feeling half-hearted, you're feeling like, hey, I'll do it tomorrow, feeling like, who cares? Psh, 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 Edward says, wake up. No, no, no. With all my might, I'm going to live with all my might. Um, You know, there's a saying that goes like this, the child is the father of the man. The child is the father of the man. In other words, the choices that we make while we're young, the habits we form, have everything to do with the kind of people, the kind of Christians, that we are going to be. Here's uh, J.C. Ryle in his address to young men Quote, What young men will be, in all probability, depends upon what they are now. Youth is the seed time of full age. By the shoot, we judge the tree. By the blossoms, we judge the fruit. By the spring, we judge the harvest. By the morning, we can judge the day. And by the character of the young man, we may generally judge what he will be when he grows up. Young man, don't be deceived. Don't think you can willfully serve yourself and your pleasures in the beginning of life and then go and serve God with ease at the end. It is the universal experience of Christians that if they are willing to compromise at the beginning, they will find it harder and harder to do things faithfully later on. So here is Edward's wisdom of being resolute from his youth, preparing his heart. By the time we meet him, He's all ready to go. He's already set his course down deep inside. And this, by the way, this is my longest point. Don't worry, there's not four of equal length, right? But but two more things real quick before I'll just pick out out of his resolutions. Resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. Always pressing ahead like we said this morning. Number 56, resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. There he was, just a teenager, feeling the full weakness of his flesh, understanding it's going to be a fight every day to the end of my life. I am not going to give over or slacken my fight with my corruptions, however much I might be unsuccessful, I'll not give up. Here's a teenager who had set his heart on serving the Lord his God. Well, I I gave you lots of extra illustrations. I'm taking advantage of the fact that some of you are going to be at my house later for a special snack uh, for Second Sunday Singles, and I'm giving you something to talk about, right? Okay. So, what kind of life do you want to live? Are you preparing your heart Ezra is a man who has been out to make a difference. I mean, by the time he he arrives, he's prepared. Prepared of heart for what lies ahead. This is the man who you see has the hand of God's blessing upon him from the moment we see him. A man of resolute heart. More briefly, a diligent mind. A diligent mind. Ezra had prepared his heart not just in general, but specifically three things. Number one, to seek the law of the Lord. To seek the law of the Lord. Uh, as a matter of fact, the connection between Ezra and God's word is repeated no less than eight times in this uh, chapter alone. You might not have caught it, but uh, many references to the law of his, of his God and even those specific things that were given by the king for sacrifice, those are right out of Leviticus so it is that explicitly, eight times implicitly, even more, we find this is a man who understands the, the law of the Lord. A definite correlation uh, that is there uh, between the mind that is diligent to seek the word of God and the man on whose hand the Lord rests. I could trace that out throughout the scriptures. I'll just mention one or two things here. There's a definite correlation between our commitment to know and obey God's word and the hand of blessing upon us. Is this, what is this, legalism? What here? No, no, no. In fact, you might know that other navigator's verse from Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night in order that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success, says the Lord. Um, Lots of people are going to be there worshiping around the throne in that day who have not set their minds as diligently to it. But if we want to ask, what about the one who prospers in all that he does, in the way that the Lord blesses him with success in what he does for the Lord? That man is one who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. How important it is that our minds be renewed, that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that, as I said this morning, we are ever growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just going to say I'm so thankful for every last one of you here today uh, that are paying some attention to me, which is almost all of you, of course, uh, that you've come here tonight not, not only to worship God and to enjoy uh, singing and praise and fellowship and communion in him, but have, have said, Lord, I want to also hear your word from your servant to, to come ready to receive God's word. Peter says that we are to be like newborn babes craving the pure spiritual milk of the word. Jesus prays that we might be sanctified in the truth, for God's word is truth. Pray that this morning. But there's no point of Christian doctrine that has been more zealously and successfully attacked in our age than the doctrine of the truth of Scripture, as I have been pointing out to you. So, So many people that are disregarding it to our left, having little care about it to the right, Uh, be on guard, friends, against the spirit of the age that we would stand out to be God's people by devoting our minds to his word. Charles Spurgeon writes, however this sacred book may be treated nowadays by the critics, it has not been treated unquestioningly by the Lord. He continually quoted the law and the prophets with intense reverence. How much more should we? Moreover, the utmost degree of deference and homage is paid to the Old Testament writers by the New. We never find an apostle raising a question about the degree of inspiration in this book or that. Oh, end quote. No, no, no. So from the beginning to the end, we find that, you know, at least ordinarily, those whom God blesses, who's, who, who, who put, he puts his hand upon and blesses, those whose hearts seek his word who hide it away, who, have, uh, who d- uh, diligently uh, study and know what he says. I can give you many illustrations of that, but I do want to press on. Um, Psalm 119 gives us the right spirit about things. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I'll keep it to the end. Give me understanding. Behold, I long for your precepts. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Cultivate that hunger. Ask God to give you that hunger for his word, that you might be useful servants (coughs) with his hand upon you. Uh, Again, I don't say this in any kind of uh, automatic or legalistic way. Please don't misunderstand me. Ordinarily, in the Bible, in the history of the church, God chooses and blesses those whom he has promised to bless, those who have meditated upon his word day and night. Third, an obedient will. An obedient will. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to do it. Before he went and taught it and applied it to others, he learned to live it out himself because he was devoted to show and tell Christianity. Show and tell Christianity. I've given you lots of illustrations of this over the years, told you about how my old elder would have a bunch of us young guys in a Bible study every Saturday morning, very early in the morning, 6.30. It was across town. You know, we'd study, we'd read really good books, we would uh, we learned to do our testimony. We memorized these, these very verses. We uh, did all kinds of wonderful things. And then his wife and family would come down at 8 o'clock and join us for breakfast. And we'd have another hour at the table, which was at least as instructive to me as the previous hour and a half, although I needed them both. But I didn't know how a Christian family went. I didn't know how a godly man talked to his wife and children. I didn't know what ordinary life for a new Christian was was like as a new Christian. I just didn't know. I needed show and tell Christianity and how the world needs people who are, um, well, as as the uh, NIV has a nice paraphrase, who are able to make uh, the uh, the way of God attractive, uh, who adorn the doctrine of God in all things, who make. God's teaching, in other words, beautiful in their lives. We, we need people like this. Ezra stood out not just as a man who knew a lot. He was a man that even we are able to look back at tonight and say, we, we need to follow him as he follows Christ, right? How biblical and how wise it is for us to think this way. Um. In the Army College of West Point, there's a prayer known as the Cadet Prayer, repeated every Sunday in chapel services to hammer it in, right? It goes like this. Make us choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong, and never to be contented with half-truth when whole truth can be won. Endow us with courage that is born of loyalty to all that is noble and worthy, that scorns to compromise with vice and injustice and knows no fear when right and truth are in jeopardy. Amen. I say repeated weekly in order to hammer those words into those cadets. They want their graduates to have obedient wills as they go into difficult life situations, to have prepared their hearts ahead of time to do God's will how wise and how biblical. We must sit down coolly and calmly before the pressure is on and consider what the Lord wants us to do in that situation and then carry it through no matter what because you know what's happened in these last several years as we've seen a gradual erosion. Barna and the others we were talking about earlier, more and more there's been pressure, not not threats of great violence or... Not great violence applied, thank God, but a tr- uh, the the world has had tr- tremendous effect by having us compromise our principles little by little, so that we are always negotiating how much of God's will we are going to do, and it turns out to be less and less and less. Okay, uh, people still might know a great deal, but it doesn't show as it should. Now, the story is, in the late 1800s, I mean, it's not just a story. It was written up in 1882 a, by a scientist. So, um, but anyway, in the 1800s, uh, scientists conducting experiments on nerves and the reflexes of fro- frogs in boiling water, right? So you know the story, kids, don't try this at home. A frog is thrown into boiling water, and immediately it leaps out, of course. But one scientist wrote this up and said, if you put a frog in a comfortable temperature but then gradually raise the temperature to boiling. You know what happens? He reported, the temperature was raised at the rate of 0.002 degrees Celsius per second, and the frog was found dead at the end of two and a half hours without having moved, Uh, the famous 1882 experiment. Well, ever since, of course, the boiled frog has become a symbol for what happens to people when they allow themselves to compromise their principles bit by bit in the world they are a little more and a little more affected and a little more affected until they are dead, spiritually speaking. And it's not enough to know what is right. We, we must have the resolve to do the will of the Lord. So some of you might have experienced the stress diet. Have you ever been on the stress diet? You know what this is, right? Uh, breakfast, half a grapefruit, slice of whole wheat toast, no butter, eight ounces of skim milk. Lunch, Four ounces lean broiled chicken breast, no skin, one cup steamed spinach, one cup herb tea, one Oreo cookie. <laughs> Mid-afternoon stack. The rest of the Oreos in the passage package. Two pints, Rocky Road ice cream, one jar hot fudge sauce. Dinner, two loaves of garlic bread, a large pitcher of Coke, one large sausage, mushroom, and cheese pizza, three Snickers bars. Snack, eat the entire frozen Lee cheesecake Directly from the freezer, okay? Mm. Okay, the, the lesson of following the stress diet, beware the power of one Oreo cookie. <laughs> beware the momentum of compromise. Beware the momentum of compromise. It's a daily fight. Uh, young people, settle in your mind. When the seed is small, what springs from it is great. We need to be a people of obedient will to be settled on what we're to do and to carry it out, even in small matters, a people of resolute will. Fourth and finally, of a testifying mouth. And I'll testify a bit more rapidly myself. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is absolutely critical in order to make a difference in a thoughtless and untaught generation. In recent years, the seeker church movement has tried to get many people into the church, in part by softening and shortening biblical preaching. You say, well, couldn't you shorten it just a little bit? No. In order to attract more people to the services, they surveyed their customer base uh, that they were trying to reach and found out that people actually wanted upbeat, pragmatic, 20-minute messages. And the customer is king, after all, so they give them what they want to get them to keep on coming. And if people prefer drama over doctrine, well, so be it. Um, So, the question, of course, is, does this work? Well, does it get people in? Yes. Will it make a difference in them? And will that change the world? Well, we've been running this experiment, you know, for a long time. So that the results are in, and they keep coming in. Yet another George Barna survey finds that only 23% of evangelical Christians expressed a strong belief in absolute truth while 28% of the American population does. So, in other words, evangelical are less certain about the whole concept of truth than the average American. Uh, We will never change the world if we do not even believe the truth of God. Ezra set his heart not only to seek the law of the Lord and to do it himself, but to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. It is the truth of God that will change people and nations. This is his weapon to fight massive problems in his culture and generation. And it is the truth that needs again to be heralded from us today. We need to know it, we need to do it winsomely, and we need to teach it effectively to a careless and ignorant world. May, God be ha- may God's hand be on us to do so now for that is what he had done then well in conclusion they say a good man's work is never done and that is how things always are in the surf of god service of god the more you've accomplished the more you can see still needs to be done we just went through six chapters of struggle and now you say the the real work is just beginning well this is the way it is um In the life of God's people, completing a major project, say, in the life of the church can be celebrated, and we celebrate it at the end of the last chapter. Uh, When you've taken toil and strain to finish something, it's time to rejoice, but it's only a milestone, and soon you realize that it's just a stepping stone to the next stage of the work, higher and deeper in. Sorry. Mm. Lewis, you, you know what I'm trying to quote. A time of refreshed, ref- refreshment may be in order, but it's, that it's time to go back to work, and it's past time for the people in Ezra's day. J.I. Packer wrote that when you uh, climb his favorite mountain in Wales, along his favorite route, there are actually two places that you're sure you see the summit there before you. But when, when you get to that point, you realize uh, there's just a fold in the terrain, And the real summit is still upward and onward. And that's how the, well, that's how the service of Christ feels like to every believer. A good man's work is never done. Our health will probably at some point uh, limit our doing to praying. We can't do as much as we would like in a lifetime, but the work never ends. This life is not rest but exercise. And may God strengthen us for the daily stretches and service that continues now and to the end. Let's pray together. Our Father, once again, we pray that as you have blessed your word to your people so signally in the life of the generation of Ezra, uh, we pray that once again you would raise up for yourself servants in whose heart you do sit enthroned as king, whose word is their rule whose lives make it uh, uh, a beautiful adornment for such a great word. And pray that you would send forth more and more of these to teach our...